Perfect now. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cheap Home Grow Show, Growing with My Fellow Growers. This is Dr. MJ Coco. We're going to get things started off today. Um, yeah, so let's go ahead and uh, go around and do some introductions, I suppose. Uh, Jack, you want to start off? Yeah, you can find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram and Cannabis. You can also find me on Twitter at Jack underscore Greenstock, and I host my own podcast, Greenstock Talks. Thanks for having me. Of course, Jack. Um, yeah, I didn't really have you. We're all here together, right? Um, let's see. Let's kick it over to Matt Gates. Matt, how you doing today? I'm doing really good. I'm as I was saying before, I met Pete Matthew because I've been uh, neck deep in some old insect evolutionary research because I just finished that part two to my global cannabis integrated pest management review video. So that will be going up on YouTube today or tomorrow. So if you're interested in the ecology and pest host relationships with cannabis, I invite you to take a look at all one hour and 47 minutes of it. Oh, wow. Get some popcorn ready for that one, huh? That's oh. for sure. <laughs> all right. Spartan grown. How's it going, Spartan? It's going pretty good. Sitting here trimming up a harvest, but uh, yeah, I'm Spartan grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan grown or at work on Instagram at Mitten Can Co. Also, you can find me here on YouTube, right here with Grown with My Fellow Growers or Michigan Bros Grow Show or uh, GML Show, any of those places. <laughs> awesome, man. You're inspiring for me. I should I should try to keep trimming during the show today. Um, you always seem to get a lot of stuff done during these shows, and I just sort of sit here and watch the screen. So I'm going to try to be maybe a little bit, take a, a page from your playbook there. Um, hey, Brandon, how's it going, Brandon? Hey, what's going on, guys? Um, Brandon Russ, you can find my account on Instagram at russ.brandon. You can also find a link to uh, my company, Bokashi Earthworks, in my bio, as well as the company that I cultivate for. How's everybody doing today, tonight? Doing well. Doing well, man. Thanks for joining us, Brandon. Um, cool. Let's kick it over to Tao, the American one. How's it going, Tao? Uh, hello, Dr. MJ Coco. Uh, it's going good. I'm the American one uh, on YouTube and the American one on IG. If you just uh, search the American one, I'll be the little guy with the American top hat. And uh, hello, panel and everyone in chat. Glad to be here. Awesome. Welcome, Ta. All right, let's go over to Noah the Grower. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Yeah, I'm uh, Noah the Grower on Instagram. I've uh, been growing for quite a while, a medical grower from the Pacific Northwest, and uh, happy to be here with all you guys. All right. Thank you, Noah, for joining us again. Let's kick it over to Kyle at Predicative Breeding. Kyle, how you doing? Hey, guys. Uh, really glad to be here. Um, if everybody wants to check out some of my work, uh, please feel free to go to any social media. Uh, you can find me at Kyle Breeder or Predicative Breeding. Um, if you're looking for seeds, I do have um, a website, pbreeding.com, and I'm just really happy to be here, and I uh, hope everybody, everybody's doing okay. Excellent. And I'll go ahead and introduce myself. I'm Dr. MJ Coco from cocoforcannabis.com. Um, been a, a busy week this week for me, and uh, showed up here in like two seconds before we went live. I was like, you want to start? So I don't, I'm not really well prepared to, to host with questions or 
things like that. But uh, I'll just kick it around to the panel and see uh, what's going on with everybody. How's your grows doing? I can tell you, actually, I do have some cool news. You know, it's 419. So happy 420 to everybody here coming up shortly. Um, and of course, on 420, we're kicking off our spring auto flower challenge. Um, so I'm going to stay up and drop seeds tonight at midnight um, on the West Coast. The Australian growers get a bit of a head start in this one. I think it's already, um, they've already started. Um, so, but, you know, everybody's welcome. If you've got some seeds, we have a photo period division as well. So uh, we're starting that tonight, tomorrow, like pretty much right about now. So get in on the spring autoflower challenge. But uh, other than that, I am uh, just trying to sort of catch my breath. How's everybody else doing? I'm doing well. I just wanted to give a shout out to the chat because uh, I think they're part of what makes the live show so awesome. So Sour Diesel Tangy, uh, Matt K, Monkey Doo, Black Ops Garden, Mike Angel, Alfie for Life, Big Jar Grows, Kate Armstrong, Canna Reaper 413, Jill Carter, all of y'all. Thank you so much for coming. Eric Lamar, Lammers, or Lam Lamars, I'm not sure, but uh, New Bud Tender. I know he just had a harvest of some uh, predicative breeding genetics as well. So shout out to him. Shout out to everyone who's trimming. I know Spartan's trimming over there. He was talking a little before we went on the live. You said you're trimming up some blue cough. How's it smelling? Dude, this blue cough is the favorite, my favorite smell in the garden. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's very sweet smelling, uh, like, uh, like a berry, but I wouldn't say blueberry, just berry. I can't really to me, but, um, it's still one of my favorite smells in the whole garden. Uh, I love the plant when it grows. I love it after it's cured. This has been dried and cured, but I'm just trimming it now. It got a little, I let it go a little long this time. This was a uh, day 64 harvest on this one. And I like looking at the calyxes on harvest, but I also like to look at them after the cure because you still get, you still get, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, mature. It still matures as it dries, I think. Well, I, I know because I can look at them. And uh, so I look at them when I'm trimming to kind of see how much amber. There's a lot more amber than what I usually like, but it smells great. So, and it tastes great. So um, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to keep playing with these harvest windows and, and uh, see if I can get the perfect harvest date. But this one, I took a little bit longer. Well, I mean, I thought I took it at the perfect time, but by the, the way the trikes look, it looks like I took it a little bit long, but um, I don't know everything else. I can't really judge high because I would have to smoke probably two or three joints, but I don't feel like doing that right now. <laughs> so, but I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I do have some information I wanted to bring up and, and, and share with you guys and, this I got from a listener, actually. Um, let me see. Shout out Phenol Forger. I wrote down the name because I wanted to give right credit. But he linked me to an article. Uh, it's actually a very recent article, April 15th of 2020. So, you know, really just a few days ago. And it was about a, uh, an experiment or a study they did at MIT. Uh, the article was called Carbon Nanotubes Embedded. No. Yeah, that's the name of it. Carbon Nanotubes Embedded in Leaves Can Detect. No, that's not the name of the article, although that's what it says. Carbon nanotubes embedded in, in leaves can detect chemical signals that are produced when a plant is damaged. Uh, it was by Ann Trafton, but the what I wrote down is for, like my takeaway of it is they took these little carbon nanotubes and they embedded them in leaves so that they could uh, measure, uh, was it peroxide? Yeah, hydrogen peroxide, which is released by the plant in times of stress. It's like it's used almost like uh, to communicate to the other plant cells or something. Uh, it sends out as, 
when it stimulates these cells to produce with this hydrogen peroxide, when the hydrogen peroxide is released, that's usually during a sign of stress. Um, it sends out a distress signal that stimulates leaf cells to produce compounds that will help repair damage or fend off predators. So, I mean, to me, that sounds like they're talking about secondary metabolites like terpenes and cannabinoids. Um, the carbon nanotube sensors can record real time levels of, of this, these levels of hydrogen peroxide so that the researchers can use this um, to find out when a plant is, when exactly a plant is stressed and uh, what its reaction is to that stress, how far down the plant or where these signals go. So it's exciting to think about that they can start playing with these different stresses that we've talked about many times on here that everybody, you know, we never really has been studied. Just all these weird things that you've heard that people do to stress their plants out for different reasons. Now they can actually study it and see when the plant actually elicits the stress response and starts releasing that hydrogen peroxide. Thought that was uh, interesting. I also thought it was interesting, and this wasn't in the article, but if hydrogen peroxide is used throughout the plant to communicate stressors, I wonder if we could just not stress the plant and hit it with or introduce that hydrogen peroxide somehow to send that signal like an artificially send that signal and still get that response without actually having to stress the plant. I wonder if we could if we could pull that off. That would be cool. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe Dr. MJ Coco would know better than I about this plant physiology question, but um, I think that the the peroxide production is like associated with the plant cell lysis. So like when the plant cells actually die, it might actually be important for that, or maybe it's just a result of that. Um, so it might be that we could actually be more elegant and not even like bypass the peroxide in and of itself. Maybe. Well, that's why some plants are more resistant to PM than others. Some plants produce uh, a lot more hydrogen peroxide than others. Certain strains. Yeah, they, among they don't naturally produce hydrogen peroxide unless under stress. Is that true, or is that not true? I know. They know under stress that they'll produce it. Um, I don't know if they're just producing it without the stress, though. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So like, I mean, if this is a response to like herbivory, then like when the plants are destroyed, when the cells are destroyed through like, like, let's say a chewing mouth part or something, this is like, this is the framework by which I understand it for my applications as an IPM specialist, I guess. But like, as the cells get damaged, you know, there's, there are a lot of like alarm responses that happen in the immediate area. And then they also translate to broad spectrum interactions with the plant physiology that, you know, are like what you're describing Spartan, like the increase in metabolite production and that sort of a thing. But um, I think that the, 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 the peroxide production is also important. Like plants have a hypersensitive response to like pathogens. So like if a plant cell, a successfully resistant a uh, plant cell or a plant might um, lyse its cells really qu quickly when the cell like discovers or realizes that it's been penetrated by like powdery mildew or something like this. And it's that like self-destruction, that autolysis that occurs um, that makes the plant highly resistant because the pathogen can't deal with that potentially. If it's a biotroph, if it's a necrotroph and it can just, it can, oh great, that plant cell's dead. I'm just going to eat that dead cell now. Well, 
then uh, nothing really matters at that point. There was a couple things that kind of went into more detail in the article. I can read them super quick. It's only a couple paragraphs, but I'm going to go ahead and read them real quick because it's just, it explains it far better than I can. It says, um, this is obviously starting in the middle of, of a article. So you'll have to reference that article to get the whole thing. But it says they saw that after a leaf was injured, hydrogen peroxide was released from the wound site and generated a wave that spread along the leaf, similar to the way that neurons transmit electrical impulses in our brains. And as the plant cells release hydrogen peroxide, it triggers calcium released within adjacent cells, which stimulates those cells to release more hydrogen peroxide. So like dominoes successfully falling, this makes a wave that can propagate much further than a hydrogen peroxide puff alone would. The wave itself is powered by the cells that receive and propagate it. So it, it travels all the way down, it seems like, throughout the whole leaf and to maybe adjacent cells after that. And then the last part was, it says that the flood of this hydrogen peroxide stimulates that the plant cells to produce those molecules called secondary metabolites, such as flavonoids or carotenoids. I don't know how to say that one. Carotenoids. Carotenoids. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Which help them to repair the damage. Some plants also will produce other secondary metabolites that can be secreted to fend off predators. These metabolites are often the source of food flavors, blah, blah, blah. We already know all that. Okay, so the peroxide is more like what you're just, so it's not quite like what I'm describing. I might be describing it totally wrong, um, potentially, but it sounds like it's like a, like a sodium, I almost like the, like you're, like they aptly put in the report, like neurons communicating electrically. Hmm. Yeah, it's like, yeah, from, like that, a signal. from that description, it sounds more like a messenger than an actual sort of agent, right? It's not. Yeah, definitely. Maybe it can be both, sort of, because, you know, uh, right. a system that can use them for both in, like, different concentrations and such is more efficient, I suppose. Maybe that's where I'm getting confused. Yeah, no, that would be an interesting. Have you posted the, the link, Spartan? I have not. It's, it's on my phone, so good luck. <laughs> okay, well, you, can, you stop <laughs> You still have plenty of time. Yeah, I'd be interested in reading into that. Um, I, I don't have too much to comment on it at this juncture, though. Yeah, I have a cool science thing. I have a cool science thing. Okay, Go ahead. are we sharing things? I'm gonna yes. share. It. Yeah, let's see. Yeah. Um, so I told you guys that I was working on my video, and the, there was a section where I was going to talk about sort of insect evolution. And I was really happy. I keep saying this every single time that um, I try to look, almost every single time I try to look something up, uh, I find that the thing that I'm really interested in, 2019, 2018, sometimes even 2020, those research reports were just made recently. And it's like, I'm happy that I'm making this video at this time because it's fresh information. But one of the coolest things that I came across, I was kind of already aware of this, but um, the way that it was sort of articulated to me um, when I put it all together was, was, was fascinating to me. I need to find it though. Hold on. I thought I had it, but I guess is it right here. Okay. So like, so obviously we know that there's like different insects and I'll try to be brief, but like, so one thing is there's a group of insects called the, um, the the polyneoptera and basically those are insects all of those insects they go through sort of incomplete metamorphosis 
So they don't have like a larva and a pupa and adult, they kind of have a nymph and then that nymph successively molts into an adult, like a grasshopper does, that kind of thing. And um, what I was reading about was how uh, they did, these researchers looked at their genes and in specific, kind of like what Spartan's talking about here with like the peroxide, they have genes that code for enzymes that break down like cellulase and pectinase and all of these different, um, you know, uh, compounds that are structural compounds for plants. And so when they produce them, obviously it digests them and it allows them to actually make use of the food that they're eating. Um, but it looks like uh, these compounds were, or I'm sorry, these genes rather, were pretty basal to insects. And it looks like insects kind of garnered both micro microbes in their bodies. Like the, the ancestral insect was detrivorous. The ancestral insects uh, basally were detrivores. They didn't really eat plants at the very beginning. And it looks like they, they were able to gain microbes that could break down uh, plants and other, other food sources. And then as they evolved, they kind of evolved to eat plants. And then those genes became very important. And so both microbes and their own endogenous genes are allowed, allow them to uh, eat these plants. But I suppose not to ramble, the really interesting thing to me is that they were able to use these genes to put the, the insects in their various groups. And some insects, especially ones that um, obviously don't eat plants, have kind of reduced genes that allow them to do this, like fleas and that kind of a thing. And But the interesting thing to me, though, was that butterflies, the larvae of butterflies, so caterpillars, which a lot of them eat plants, obviously, they didn't really have these genes. And that was kind of odd to me that the caterpillars kind of forewent them because there's tons of caterpillars. Most caterpillars are herbivorous, pretty much all of them are with a few exceptions. It was like a mic drop. Good job. Yeah, sorry, sorry, my mic was on mute. Um, I, was I don't have much to come back with, Matt, on that. I, I don't know if you guys are ready to shift topics or not, or uh, if we feel like we've adequately, adequately covered that. But I was curious, uh, the American one, I, for a long time, didn't realize that you're a breeder yourself. I've seen uh, Tanasi Gardens and uh, Eagle Gardens have uh, grown some of your gear out. And I was curious if you'd like to talk a little bit about some of your, your crosses and stuff that you've made. And, uh, well, now that people are growing them and uh, it's going around the community a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I made beans uh, quite a long time ago now. And I, uh, I'm i not really a breeder. I'm more like uh, a very selective pollen chucker because my definition of breeder goes a little deeper than just uh, making seeds, you know? I consider a breeder someone who's like working a line you know, I took it at least F1, F2, F3, trying to attain a goal of some sort, you know, and I haven't the time nor the inclination to do that just yet, but there's a couple of strains that I have that I'm going to try and start uh, narrowing down some stuff. Um, but yeah, I crossed some stuff with, um, I made F1s basically, and um, I sent them out. I made three. I made, uh, I used a cheesequake male, and um I hit a godbud from Jordan of the Islands and another Jordan of the Islands. He had made an OG Kush by godbud that I had, you know, 
he made that and I crossed that with the cheesequake mail. And then I had a, um, a bag seed mother clone that I kept for like a long time that I don't know the, the lineage of that I had with that. And Why'd, I sent you that the, Why'd you keep the bag uh, seed it, mother? It was, it was different than all the other plants I had at the time. And there was just something about it that, it, you know, that was special. Um, the stone was really good and it was pretty easy to grow. And yeah, there was just something about that plant. I still love it today. And, um, but, um, yeah, so I hit that with it. So I sent out all testers. I sent people all three strains and they grew them out. And I said, you know, let me tell me which one you guys like the best. And I, you know, cause I didn't want to make them all, but everybody came back with a different strain that they liked the best. So I tried keeping them all and I actually lost the, Oh God, um, mother plant but i have more of those beans that i might search i just might do the enough to that ophelia but yeah that's why and i have been searching for other shit to make uh seeds with but um i have good females but i haven't found a male that i'm ready to hit with anything just yet so that's where i'm at in my breeding uh you know my seed making but yeah those three strains are really killer and they're unique enough to you know be worth uh having around didn't you do Amy's Aces too? Or did you say that? Yeah, that that's Amy Aces is what I call the um that's the bag seed mother and cheesequake. So and yeah, that that one has some really good uh offspring. They all do though, but I'm, Amy I, Aces I, was special, yeah. I was a big fan of Subcool's work and a, a lot of his work you could see like one male passed onto a lot of lines that did really well. It passed its traits. And I think if you had a, a good cheese quake and it hit any of those females and the, they were good females. Uh, yeah. Well, that's kind of the problem. Well. I don't, that's kind of the problem. I just don't want to hit everything with the same, you know, I don't want all the same, the same, and I'm more selective. Like I, I have a time, wreck, uh time, wreck female. That's really intriguing, but I don't know what to hit with it. And if I just hit everything with everything, I, I could do that. Someone's like, yeah, cause you, you might find the best thing and the thing that you think wouldn't work well together. But then I really feel like a pollen chucker if I'm just hitting everything with the mail that I have. But on the other hand, you know, whatever. I don't know. It's like North Star Genetics. He has like 50 lines plus, And then you got like DJ Short with like five. So there's like oh, the two that... ends of the spectrum. I think there's a value in both. I'll say that personally. Yeah. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. But that's my only one critique of some of the sub calls. Man, everything, a lot of the stuff that he hit with that space dude male, you could taste it in everything. And um, I grew a lot of that stuff out. And yeah, just, I got sick of it. So, you know, that's another thing. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Dominant. That's yeah. I loved that across all of his lines. It's like I know, lemon, I upper high. It, it definitely it's, works. It's good, but I'm just like, it's too much. Yeah, I think people get sick of anything if they run it too much. But uh, Brandon, you've been quiet over there. How are things going in Oklahoma? What's uh, your commercial growth? I've been seeing some posts. It's been looking really fire. Oh, yeah, I am so excited. I have some extremely terpy flowers uh, and I have less than two weeks until harvest, um, which is great on my first run. And then next coming up, I'm about, I think, 16 days into my pheno hunt room which is, it's just, it's so beautiful. It, it's almost, almost perfect. I love it. I'm just, I'm, I love going in there and it's going to be even better because I'm going to be able to search through all of these different flavors and all these different varieties, um, you know, come up with some cool names and just, you know, it, it's fun. I love doing the pheno hunting. 
that one cut of Limerilla you had looked like it was really throwing down, just like stacked up uh, huge colas versus like I think it was velvet ropes maybe from second generation genetics. Uh, it was a little bit uh, smaller buds, but uh, what are you uh, thinking about the velvet rope so far? Okay, so the the table that has all of the second generation ge- genetics on there, there is nothing that I would consider bad smoke, right? It's all really good. However, there are two exceptional phenos, one being a velvet ropes that is very silver and magenta in color. And then there's a, a lumpa goo, which is the Mendo Afgu cross with the F4 blueberry. And it's if you've ever had Afgu, um, it smells just like that with a little bit of hint of, of berry. Um, and it's really pungent and it, it stacks these just massive, massive colas. So they're all doing well. They actually are some of the largest plants in the room. My uh, my limerilla that I have that I think I posted that that stacks really really hard is the um, the number four, um, and I had hunted that in the second pheno hunt that I did with that variety, and that's one that I kept. I kept number four and number thirty one, um, but I have I have some varieties right now because I have twenty two limerillas in the hunt and. Uh, I had made a post at the very beginning saying these are the three different uh, chemical profiles that I usually see or terpene profiles. One being the uh, chocolate, the chemical chocolate coffee, one being the uh, chemical like super lime and chemical soap. And then one that's kind of the in between both of those. And so I found some phenos of the chocolate and coffee which I'm really digging. And then I found some others, um, some of the lime uh, that's really good too. And, and surprisingly enough, you know, the number 16 limerilla is one I had my eye on the whole time. And it, per, it, it did exactly what I thought it was going to do. So um, I don't know. There's a lot of good stuff coming though. I have some Mac in there. I have some uh, Mac crosses. I have Mac cross to I-95, which I named that one I-35 since I'm out here in Oklahoma now, and it's they're all good, man. I'm really excited. I've got a lot Where of... Where really- can, uh, if somebody's in Oklahoma, are you available at provisioning centers or dispensaries or whatever they're called now? Um, yeah, I will be. I'm not sure exactly which ones we'll be working with, but uh, the the dispensaries that carry our product, you, you'll be able to find um, that information on my page. Like, I'll drop the info in a post and say, hey, you can find the flower here because the limerilla is some of the terpiest flower I've ever, ever cultivated and smoked. And the, and it's just, it, the flavor is what really gets me on it. Right. Because it has a full flavored, full bodied smoke. Like it, it tastes exactly how it smells and it's really, really pungent. So people are going to really like it. I'm excited. I'm excited to bring it. I love it when the flavor comes through uh, the same smell, like it, it shows up in the flavor and usually it corresponds with that effect that we're looking for a lot of the time. I wanted to reach out to Noah the Groa. You've been uh, quiet over there for a little while. How are things going in your neck of the woods? Oh, everything's going good. I'm just trying to uh, stay safe with this whole quarantine thing. But uh, yeah, I've been uh, I've been constantly just, con- you know, experimenting in my room. Uh, um, one of the things that I I get my plants to to eat more 
and try to get them in the, you know, in the beginning, not to get burned, but to where they're, you know, I like to give them a good uh, flower when I flip them, a good flower uh, fertilizer. And it's that, you know, fine tuning between burning it and not giving it enough so it turns yellow. So I'm constantly just experimenting. And so I'm doing that and uh, just, just rocking and rolling, man, having a good time up here in the Pacific Northwest. I'm glad to hear that you're keeping safe and, uh, you know, still be able to do what you love to do and cultivating. And, uh, Kyle, I know you've been quiet over there. If, if you're there, uh, how are things going with you, man? Uh, what's going on? Uh, things are going good, man. I'm finally starting to see, uh, uh, pictures from, uh, basically, uh, all the work that I've done the last, the last year or well, years prior. Um, and I mean, there's been small hiccups here and there on some things, but, uh, you know, if I had any issues with those strains, I kind of pulled them off. But uh, overall, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy uh, in, in a nutshell. I mean, a lot of just a lot of beautiful plants um, at the moment. I'm not currently growing, but I am starting to because I just moved into my place and just trying to get situated. So I am uh, building my new grow room now. Um, I'm currently working with a <clears throat> there's a company in California that reached out to me, uh, um, you know, really sought after nursery called uh, Hendrix Farms that have been following me I guess for a while now and uh, uh, they sent me some clone shippers and uh, I guess that they want uh, a couple of my females I'm gonna send over there and um, just kind of working with that and which I sent one shipment through the mail and it didn't really go well because I, uh, uh, I don't know we were talking about how uh, you know during the, the travel through Midwest that it would freeze so I packed I insulated a box and I put some hand warmers in there and uh, he received it not that long ago and they were dead so i don't know uh, maybe i put too many hand warmers in there to, to try and keep it somewhat warm uh but just dealing with that and uh you know just trying to fulfill orders things are you know people seem really happy uh things are going pretty well and i'm just kind of hoping to you know get to basically take the strains that i thought were the best performers and uh maybe you know move them further and do some new pinot hunts as well but uh, overall things are going pretty well i'm glad to hear that i wanted to say uh with the clone shippers i've uh Allegedly, uh, I've, I know someone who has sent clones from California to a Midwestern state where it was snowy and the clones arrived and they sat on a snowy porch for a night before the person was able to get to them and the person was able, able to still root them. And there was no uh, special thing other than like the cardboard box and then uh, they were in a clone cruiser and then that was wrapped with like a bubble wrap. But other than that, they all five ended up living. So if you ever do need to, I would say, I don't think you need to add the heat. I wouldn't worry too much about the cold. People put clones in the fridge to maintain them for a few weeks or slow them down. So uh, cold is, is less your enemy, I think, than the heat with the clone shipping. So you're, you're, so you're suggesting uh, send them unrooted? You can also send them unrooted, but even when they're rooted, I think uh, they're, as long as like there's a little bit of water in the rock wool or whatever medium, the plug or whatever it is, uh, that you send it in. I think that people have had a lot of success sending them that way. But unrooted is also another way to go about it. Um, I'd wrap a wet paper towel around the base of the stem, and that has had a lot of success for a lot of people as well. Spartan. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, think, oh, I definitely think the issue was. Ahead, uh, was oh, I was just. I'm sorry. Uh, I was just. I think definitely the issue was uh, was too much heat for sure. I think I'm just going to try and send it uh, as is and. Uh, I think it'll it'll be just fine, but um, I'll definitely keep that in mind for sure. And uh, this is all legal under the Hemp Farm Bill because a clone contains under 0.3% THC. So uh, you're allowed to, within the United States, 
uh, send anything with 0.3% THC, whether that's seeds or uh, cutting, as long as it's not like in flower or something like that, which wouldn't make any sense to send anyway. I would be careful because even in veg, I've gotten trichomes before. So just make sure. Well, Spartan, I just wanted to pass it over to you anyway. Uh, you are still going to work. Cannabis is deemed essential uh, in Oklahoma and in California and Michigan as well. So I know uh, Mitten Canico has been producing a lot of flour. And where is that available at? Because I know a lot of times the Michigan Bros Grow Show, you mentioned it, but I don't think we've ever kind of gone over the provisioning centers that you could find that flour at. Yeah, the, we have a good relationship with um, a couple different provisioning centers that will use them often but uh we really don't have any people that are like tied down for sure always going to beat them we try to spread it around the state so uh we're always working with uh other people and really it's like on to be 100 percent honest with you the boss gets on the phone he says we got x amount of pounds to sell and he starts calling people on the list of uh of the dispensaries until it's all gone and uh you know, he usually doesn't get to the bottom of that list. So he kind of tries to spread them around so that all the state can get, um, can get, you know, a chance to try some of our stuff, but mostly you're going to find our stuff in the Ann Arbor area. Uh, we have, uh, herbal solutions, I think is out there. We have, uh, Arbor wellness. We work can you show off Arbor. one of your packages? I know that you guys just yep. recently started, uh, packaging your own flower. Yeah. We just using these little, uh, these little packages like this for now um, just to get our name on our product because right now what we're doing or what a lot of people are doing too is, is you, you ship in bulk to a dispensary and they package. Well, then they can put whatever package they want and obviously they're not going to put your name on it. So if you can supply your own packaging, that's one way to get your name out there. <laughs> I think branding is everything as the cannabis industry continues to open up and people that are doing really well, have a well-established brand, especially in as more and more places, you can't look at the flower or smell the flower. They're just going to have to know and trust that brand or that name. And once they've tried it once and said, Oh, mint and Canico or GMO or their garlic, whatever is amazing. They can trust that bag each time when they see it at different provisioning centers. And when it's bulk flower, which uh, California used to do the same thing, you'd get a, an ounce or whatever in a jar and they'd weigh out like three or four grams for you and you wouldn't know who the farmer was. And I think it's great for people to have the ability now to see like the brand and connection and getting to know who actually grew it and how it was grown, where it was grown, etc. That brings up a, a question I've asked other people and uh, maybe it's not a common answer, but my answer, I'm getting ahead of myself. The question I ask is, is like, if you could, for, if you could get a hundred percent correct information on the strain or the farmer which would you prefer i prefer the farmer i don't give a damn what the strain name is i want to know the farmer what do you guys the think? exact opposite Def- i mean i would want both i think it's really cool to recognize the farmer but i would want to know the you know i would want to know the pedigree i'd say the good farmer farmers know the- what they're growing I think that the, it's more important for me to know that the farm is a farmer practice that I agree with rather than a strain because I, I could smoke just about any strain. There's not a strain that's like a danger to me, but there's an awful lot of practices a farmer can do that's a danger to me. So I'd, I'd much rather so the know farmer that. or their practices. I guess I don't understand what is encompassed by farmer. I'm assuming the person who, I'm saying the people who grew the plant that I'm consuming. Right. So you're saying, would you rather know what you're smoking or how, like what was grown or how it was grown? Right. Exactly. I'd rather know how it was grown rather than the genetic lineage of the plant. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm 50-50. I, I want to know both and equally as much. I will say I'll push back a little bit, Spartan, because for some people, uh, uh, although a cultivar may not damage them, like it might not kill them, it could give them a panic attack. Like Kyle was talking about in past episodes, high THC varieties recently have not been the best for him. So like for him, I think it'd be better to know like, oh, I have a one-to-one CBD to THC than to know uh, it was cultivated in living soil versus in rock wool. I definitely I say that, yeah, if it's between safety and how, how it's being done, obviously, like, it's hard to compromise on that choice. Right. There's some sketchy things that are done, I suppose, in some cultivation practices, um, spraying with certain kinds of things during flowering or whatever. I would want to make sure that, that those things weren't done if sort of like everything's on the table. Um, it, it's a weird question for me to really think about, though, because I know the guy that, that grows my cannabis really, really well, and I trust him. I, I am him. Everything kind of is on the table. Even in the legal market, there are people spraying stuff that's banned, and they get caught every so often, but they don't always get caught, and there's also ways around it and, and ways to – every state has different testing and a lot of stuff. I don't know. There's a, Even if, like, they provide you a thing that says this – cannabis has been tested for mold uh, I, I don't trust that anymore because I've now had a cannabis test pest mold testing that I later found PM on it so I think we're not at the perf- perfect point in the process yet so like I think yeah, there's a certain well, minimum of things that I'd like to know about the flower before I consume it to know that it's gonna be safe to consume but as far understand, as the, I mean you have to understand though that you can't test the the sample that you're going to consume the sample is consumed in the test so they're gonna take a batch sample test i don't really know how they can get away i mean i don't know how they could do a a a, a test on the product without destroying it the visual inspection for molds well the mold shows up later so i mean yeah you can do a visual even with a even with a microscope and if you didn't man happen to see it on the you know one gram you pulled out of 10 pounds i mean there's possibility <coughs> that there you know it's on the other 10 pounds somewhere or actually in Michigan, it's 15 pound samples so. do you I think it could have grown in it's, transit. Useful, it's useful to know also how um, how it's grown so you can kind of vote with your wallet, right? Like, is this a sustainable practice or do I want to work with people who are growing in certain, I guess, when we find appellations, right? I, I totally agree with that. But I wanted to answer to um, Tao's point of could it have grown in transit? The one that I'm referring to specifically is vertically integrated. They grow it. They package it. They sell it at their own dispensary. So if it did happen in the process, it was their own fault. And not only did it happen to me, like you could say, okay, it was just one gram out of a 15-pound batch, but there was another large Mendo Dope Boys. They almost never buy legal dispensary cannabis, but they went in and they bought the exact same uh, uh, cultivar from the same brand. It was uh, called Cookies, which you all are probably familiar with if you know about Was there any recourse? What could you guys do about it? That's BS. You could return it and get your money back. That's it. Uh Oh. But as far as like, I would rather, you know, not have my fiance to uh, soon to be wife tomorrow have gotten like very sick, had headaches and was vomiting from. Yeah, that's, you should speak to a lawyer, maybe. Maybe there is something. I, unfortunately, I don't think we're at a mature enough state in the cannabis uh, market, at least yeah. here. But um, thankfully, I'm just happy that there was no more severe repercussions. But yeah, Mendo Dope Boys had the same issue and the strain was called Georgia Pie. So I don't know if that particular cultivar is just sensitive to pm in there it was they have those mylar bags versus a lot of the companies use jars where a little bit of air can go in and out 
So I think uh, there's a lot of factors that go into it. I, I don't think that like any brand is perfect. I mean, everybody's uh, susceptible to making a mistake and having mold pop up here and there. So I don't think that they're like intentionally trying to like hurt people or anything, but I think there is a level of quality assurance that if, if I had a brand, I would want to make sure I was trying to do everything throughout the process to make sure that wasn't happening. I'm reminded right. of, I'm reminded of um, somebody who uh, for a while, there were a bunch of people like three or four people who had contacted me kind of at the same time because they found something in their cannabis. It looked kind of like a bug it was the sort of puparia of a hoverfly. And for people who haven't seen that, it's kind of got a teardrop shape. And it's kind of large. You definitely notice it on your bud. And um, I guess like they were, they had an aphid problem and the hoverflies came and ate all their aphids, but the larvae had to, you know, they had to pupate somewhere. And uh, I know a few people who had even like the fly in their uh, bottle and that's a terrible look optics bad but for me like knowing that it was a biocontrol I'm like oh okay I guess but you know I don't think people should be getting that in their bud quality control counts yeah like the final trim inspection before the jarring they should have been like hey there's a bug on this because of some yeah. of the jars I've seen you can literally just if you looked at it for two seconds and spun it all the way around you would see the bug that's on the cannabis not always but in, in certain cases like that uh, I think a little higher level of quality standard and granted we're coming from a market where there was no quality standards it was some some people were spraying whatever the hell they wanted there was bugs whatever on it or pesticides that you would never want on there so we're getting a little bit more regulation and and some people would think that's going to provide more safety but I think even people home growing and that are doing it well a lot of people on this panel I'd be more than happy to consume your cannabis without ever seeing a test because I know you've aren't going to put stuff on it to harm yourself because you're consuming it yourself. And uh, a lot of those big companies, I don't have that same trust in them. Agreed. I'm usually skeptical. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, and that, this, this whole conversation is just a, a big advertisement for growing your own, right? That's what yeah, this when it show gets, is. When it's too big, they really can't inspect every little minuscule morsel as well as, you know, someone who has a smaller operation there's a number of things that happen with, with scale in, in a craft product product like cannabis too. I mean, I, I just think doing smaller batches allows a, a higher quality all throughout like every single stage of the process from, um, you know, growing and training the plants to um, maintaining sort of a good canopy distribution to uh, trimming the, the plants as Spartan and I are both trying to work on that. Um, curing, I mean, everything about sort of creating top shelf, high quality cannabis, um, not when we're even just thinking about like sort of the aberrant practices, like spelling, spraying chemicals on flowering plants or things, um, makes that small batch sort of do it yourself style better than, than what you can get in any kind of commercial setup, I think. Well, and the, the shame is that like with that brand that I already named that I'm not even going to name again, because I just have lost so much respect for them because since this has happened to me, I've seen so many other people with either bug powdery mildew or other issues with their cannabis product and like yeah you can get a refund but to me i'd rather just not do that their product is marketed as indoor cannabis flower and some of it has bugs that you would only see in outdoor operations or greenhouse operations so and, and not to say that they can't get indoor but like uh, i think it's much more likely that they're taking some stuff from the greenhouse operation and relabeling it to indoor and trying to sell it for a lot more like this is 65 dollars an eighth before tax for most of yeah. these jars which that should be craft that should in my opinion at that price point 
you should be getting the some of the best stuff that money can buy and uh it's unfortunately very often not the case i saw a post from someone in chicago which apparently they started operations there had the same issue as the mold the mold one in chicago they've got a big cookie store out in detroit too that uh, there's always a huge line to get in and i just laugh as i drive past <laughs> Well, the definition of uh, the show, to Dr. Coco's point there, is uh, cheap home grow, you know what I mean? And it should be a, definitely a big advertisement for growing your own. Not to mention what you know what's going into it. You can control what strains you like. But just the, the pride for me, man, when I get a good one going, because, I mean, anybody who's going for a long time has screwed up and had a bad one. And the feeling when you bounce back and have a good one or when you can link quite a few good ones together, it's just confidence is great. And it's uh, it's just a wonderful feeling. I, I love growing it so much. and. That's why I'm here, man. I love it. I enjoy it. You know what? I think growing your own cannabis, too, can be kind of like a gateway drug to, um, you know, gardening in general and uh, being self-sufficient all around, trying to provide yourself and your family with uh, things that you can provide yourself from the earth and instead of having to rely on others or corporations to provide for you. So. I think right now, too, especially with everything that's going on and a lot of people being home and having extra time on their hands, it's a really great time to, you know, get homesteading books and learn about canning and preserving your own food and all that kind of stuff. Because it really does like um, when I switched to organics, uh, that's when I really started becoming more like in tune with like, you know, growing my own food and using herbs for other medicinal reasons and teas and stuff like that. So. Uh, I think that growing your own cannabis can definitely be beneficial in that aspect as well. You're here. I totally agree, Brandon. And uh, I think myself and a lot of others have started growing uh, even more food since they started growing cannabis as well. I just wanted to say shout out to Lucky. Anybody who hears the uh, bird in the background, that's Brandon's macaw. It's a beautiful bird. If you've ever seen it on any of his posts, that thing is uh, awesome. But uh, Noah, you were just showing us, it looks like maybe you're in it uh, looks like your backyard over there. You've got a, it looked like some rows that you could start planting some, yeah, we got a garden here. That's uh, it's funny. Brandon's totally right. I mean, I I, I know you know a little bit about growing uh, cannabis, but I I know a little bit about growing food outside. But I'm more interested, and in, I'm definitely trying to uh, you know figure out ways to uh, do living soil stuff outside, and especially now. And um, it's it's a lot of fun. It, it's almost like like he said, it's a gateway to doing it. Cause it's kind of like a new challenge. You know, I, I don't know a whole lot about it, and I'm excited and it's, you know, we're just starting strawberries and peppers and tomatoes and just all, all kinds of stuff outside. And it's a lot of fun. And especially now that I'm home a lot, it just gives me something to do. So I totally agree, Brandon. It's, it's that's what I'm. Yeah. Awesome. I'm just, put, I'm just put, I just put these, I had found some like old wood, right. That was at the facility. I chopped it up and then we, I had like boxes left over from my furniture and I still have a bunch of old, uh, or not old soil, I just have a bunch of soil. So it's really easy just putting down like cardboard on the lawn and then building a frame to hold your soil. Um, it just works great. And then I can grow pretty much anything there. What are you using to uh, to amend your dirt there? I kind of hinted around to it a little bit in the, uh, in the chat. I know you're a busy guy, so I don't really try to bug you much. But yeah, well, what are you doing to, to get that dirt up to par for your garden there? Um, it's just, it's the big root soil. So we, 
I had initially needed 38 yards of soil for uh, the facility, um, but they there was a minimum delivery order of 50, so I still had 12 yards of soil left over. Um, so I've been using a little bit of that to just fill up my bed since it's already there. Awesome. Yeah, and it's going to work really good because um, – I have, if for anybody listening, if, if you guys want to be able to have a wide variety of uh, heirloom non-GMO vegetable seeds, if you go on Amazon, they have what's called a survival seed pack, and it's $19.99 for like, I think it's 16,500 seeds, and you get 40 different varieties, so you get corn, squash, beans, you get all kinds of herbs, you get, you name it, it's in there, and I ordered one of those. I ordered one of those like a month ago and I'm waiting for it. It should be here in like a week. I, I found that. That is so awesome. Yeah, dude. Uh, mine's coming on the 27th. Uh, I ordered about a month ago too. So I'm really excited. I'm going to plant a bunch. I, you know what I like to do is the things that I use the most um, that I find myself consuming either and purchasing from the grocery store is what I try to grow the most of. So things like tomatoes, onions, uh, garlic, pep, uh, peppers. Those are the things that I, you know, and, and then when you have a bunch of food, potatoes, whatever it is that you have, potatoes, carrots, you can do your, um, you can do like a, a crock pot cooking really easy. And then you can literally just go into the backyard, pick fresh stuff, right, right out of the garden, throw it in the cock, crock pot with some meat. And then you're, you know, you can feed yourself and your family. I'm so definitely cool. a fan of the crock pot method um put it all in there at night and it's ready the next morning really great slow cooked meat and vegetables got a question from the chat mike angel says since it's sort of a free ball episode can you talk a little bit about topping versus fimming and i would start off by saying i personally like to top cannabis plants i think it's a good way to help them be a little bushier and increase your yield Uh, and i really like growing from seed and the symmetrical nature you can sort of top and uh, have a predictive sort of growth pattern and, and fill out your space in a, a way that gives you a lot of tops uh, towards the very top and get as much good bud as you possibly can in your space. Fimming, on the other hand, I've never done it intentionally. Uh, like once or twice it's happened when I was trying to top. Fimming means fuck it, I missed. So I think just by the title of that style of training, you can sort of... Uh, go off the idea of like i don't think people do it often super intentionally some people try to because you can get more than two heads i think if you do it a certain way but uh i'd like to hear the rest of the panel's thoughts maybe about that i agree 100 percent with what you say jack um yeah i totally support topping i think topping is a wonderful way to break uh, apical dominance and to to sort of redistribute the growth in the plant it, it definitely produces more symmetrical growth um, fimming, people think that it, it's going to sort of be twice as fast. It's not twice as fast. Uh, the plant tends to respond slower growing out of a fim than growing out of a top. Um, you have to sort of top or do the fimming much closer to um, sort of as those nodes are emerging um, so that you're shocking them sort of in an earlier time. I actually like to top late. So I like to top the plant after the plant's already grown past the node that I'm topping to so that the growth tips have a chance to sort of grow in a little bit and that keeps them from being sort of as stunted during the top itself. 
Um, if you do end up with four tops out of a fim, they tend not to be very symmetrical um, with two of them growing more vigorously than the other two. Um, so I think that you'd save time just by topping twice actually to get the same number of tops. I definitely like that style that you were talking about, about uh, kind of topping late. Um, in the times that I've grown, that is also my strategy as well. Yeah, I really like to have the, the tips that I'm topping to already have like a discernible stem on them. Um, so that, you know, they're real little branches now. They're not just sort of like little points of a growth tip. Um, and when you fim, you have to do it really early like that when there's still just little points of a growth tip. Yeah, that, that's when I train. I train my plants when they're really small. So after they've, um, after I've taken the clone and I've planted it and I know that it's established, I'll usually count the node spacing. As long as I have like, uh, you know, five, six nodes, I'll do, I'll pinch the very, very top. And then I'll just plain, uh, I'll just train the plant throughout its life cycle through veg and in, into flowering. And I, I think that you get a better uniformity for your canopy when you train like that really, really young. Um, and then just let the plant grow. But I also like throughout the entire um, life cycle of the plant, I prune all the bottoms. Um, that way I can focus on just those main branches that I'm trying to promote. I uh, respect that style as well. Tao or uh, Kyle or Noah, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Topping versus swimming? Or Spartan? I never liked the fin. I think it's a... Uh... It's too, um, what's the word? It's not symmetrical. It's like, yeah, and you can't get it right. I, I never did it, but um, I top sometimes, sometimes I don't. And uh, sometimes I, I do, I take the leaves off, the sun leaves off the growing highest tip. And that forces the lower branches to stretch up a little. You can make a tabletop plant like that pretty easily. If you, if you give it I hear that called like the top. GML topping method that's what i call it but people have pointed out that it's been around before and after gml but i learned yeah. it from him and i think that method is awesome if you guys it play work, around it works with that, very well yeah so for anyone was, who doesn't knows yeah you just yeah. basically take those two big top leaves off the highest growing apical shoot and then you'll notice the rest of the leaves around it because it isn't getting basically fueled by those leaves everything else sort of catches up and it'll regrow new leaves as those other ones start catching up I do a couple different topping. I don't ever do the femming. I, uh, for the same reasons everybody else said, I'm not going to restate them, but I really do like that GML top that you're talking about. Um, you take the, basically all the leaves at the very top, you take them off and you leave the, uh, the small little tip, but you take the little leaves and I take the two big fan leaves. And then I usually take the two big fan leaves below that if it's extremely out of whack. But once you start doing that technique, the, the GML topping technique, you're stuck doing that for the rest until you're going to the flower. That's almost like an everyday thing. So what you got to do is every single day you go in there and you look to see where your tops are, which are the top, you know, your apical meristems. And if they have a big leaf growing back, you take that big leaf off. So you're, you're basically continually stripping the leaves, which is redistributing auxins, just as if you'd done a top all well, similar to as if you'd done a top, but you don't lose that top. So it basically just pauses. It just stays there. And then uh, eventually when the other side shoots come up and catch it, you can stop taking the leaves off of that because it's no longer the top 
apical meristem, the other shoots are. So you got to do now, instead of doing one apical meristem strip, now you're doing six or five or however many tops you have. And as you, as you, the longer you veg and the longer you're doing that, the more tops you're going to get because you're just promoting all those. So um, there is kind of an art to that. Another topping technique I'll do is I'll let it go. If I have an apical meristem that's stretched up well past everything else and it's not very level, I'll let it go up and get a good size and just cut that up as a clone. Take a real deep top and use that as a clone and get that to be, especially if I only have one apical meristem and I've got a, like almost a tabletop below it, then boom, take that out. And I, I've already, you know, I've already got my tabletop. I'm good. But I, I don't do that. Um, I don't do that very close to flowers. So if I do take a top off like that, where I'm taking a clone and it's a big size top, I usually wait at least a week before I do the flip. If I, if I've taken a clone like that. I've got a small space that I like to use that technique. It works so well. Like if you let it grow straight up essentially, and then like whack it in half, then there's like three or four uh, really good shoots that if you give it a week, they're grown out and you've got like a perfect bush. And same with the GML technique. If you do what you're saying, like each day going in there, you end up with sort of like a globe of a plant. It's like everything comes up and it makes this like perfectly round bush. And uh, that can be a really super satisfying trading technique, but it does take that everyday love getting in there and, and plucking them. I was curious, um, and I don't know uh, who wants to jump in first. Uh, anybody can feel happy to, but uh, I talked a little bit before we went on live last year on 420, April 20th. Uh, it's pretty widely recognized as like the cannabis user's holiday. So I was curious if you guys have any traditions that you do uh, each year. Last year, Brandon and I met up and we had a little tie-dye session and we smoked and, and chilled. But this year, I'm going to be getting married to Lady Greenstock and spending my time with her and enjoying lots of cannabis that we've been saving. Uh, each year, we save the best nug out of like every jar or whatever we get or every harvest. We take at least one bud and set it aside. And uh, every 420, we do like a big sampler. So for our wedding, we're going to have a full day of just long cured buds and recent harvest and all that and uh, looking forward to that so curious what uh everybody else has planned for tomorrow well, or congratulations, Jack. thanks thanks um well i'll jump on here i'm not this the spring auto flower challenge uh, this is the second year so we did this last year too started the spring auto flower challenge on 420 and uh yeah i'm, I'm excited about that but, hey that makes it a tradition it yeah, is a tradition annual now that. Yep, yep. People are already talking about next year's Spring Auto Flower Challenge. So, yeah, yeah. Are those people you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, they're actually not me. <laughs> I could barely keep my eyes. I mean, I've been so buried in, in the Grow Like Guide project that the Spring Auto Flower Challenge really super snuck up on me. I realized yesterday that I had to send out a, a mailing about it because it like starts today. Um, so, but I, I am definitely excited about it. It's a lot of fun to grow autos and have everybody doing it at the same time. Well, every day is 420 for me almost, but um, I think I might take up a new one and crash somebody's wedding anniversary every year. <laughs> hey, if you can get out to San Diego, man, I, I'd <laughs> love to uh, burn one with you, Tal. That's got to be good, saving all the good nug of all the year. That's a good idea. I encourage everyone to start. If you can, if you are able to, it's a very worthwhile practice because whether it's for your birthday or whatever, New Year's or 420, I think when you, it's like a trip back into a time machine. Like you're looking back like, oh, this is bud of harvest past or even like your buddy's stuff. And you also get to see how it changed over time. Like uh, the wedding cake that we had 
a few months ago is a lot more sedative now. Yeah, I like the just the idea of having a designated date to go back and smoke those things because I save them too. Uh, I mean, I have buds from like three, four years ago at this point um, that I just is like the last nug of a plant that I really liked and I don't want to, I don't want to cash it out. You know, <laughs> it's like, I want to keep having it, but I think uh, using 420 as, a, as an event to sort of uh, maybe clear out some of that old inventory would be a good idea too. I'm currently doing that with the J1 that you were able to help me snag Jack and uh yeah, I'm, I'm holding on. Maybe that's what I'll do for 420. I actually just got the uh, first cut of that finally rooted, and I've got a big, beautiful mother plant that's ready to shoot out lots more cuts. So. Well, that's excellent to hear. And I'll, I'll hopefully be uh, passing that one around the community because I'm a big believer in if you love something, then you got to give it to all your buddies because you're eventually going to have it die on you or something's going to go wrong at some point. And if you got like five or ten friends who've got it, and uh, you can always ask them to get it back versus if it was just you hoarding it. Once it goes wrong, uh, you got no backup. So, I've always, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. But I've always felt the same way. Um, I'm definitely a big believer in that. And the local San Diego community in general, I think it's going to grow quite a bit. I feel like it's its birthright. You know, it could have been a lot bigger, but, you know, various entities have sort of kept it suppressed. And I'm looking forward to when that can be um, usurped. I'm doing my part in gifting plants to lots of people because that is uh, our legal right as a Californian. I gifted my barber six plants and uh, I, I actually taught him how to grow a few years ago. And I know he's very capable of producing an awesome crop with those six plants. So it feels good to uh, help spread the community and get more people growing their own and just giving a really hands-on approach. I think sometimes it actually just takes like handing them six plants and solo cups and saying, here you go, you know, get to it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah you know, it's, it's it's funny. It's funny that you bring that up because uh, not to interrupt you guys. Um, so I don't know if you guys remember, like basically when I first met you guys, I had a strain called Princess Elsa. Uh, so my best friend that I basically uh, had hold on all my material when I was trying to move uh, just so that my females were safe. Apparently, he still has the cut, and yet I had no clue until like yesterday. Um, so I'm like pretty excited to you know I kind of let her go but then just kind of was really regretting it for so long uh, but apparently he still has it so i'm kind of excited to see uh to have her back and maybe kind of like work with her she was a real pretty plant i remember that plan i remember you changed the name i think because uh potential issues with copyrights or whatever but uh it was yeah. really frosty the video that you had on your website maybe still on your website right now is uh really impressive it's almost white it's so trichome frosted out yeah purple purple and yeah it's one of the highest uh trichome cover plants i've ever dealt with uh, the only downfall is uh she doesn't do well with like extreme heat but uh maybe with just some work uh, i kind of work that out but uh yeah so i'm pretty, pretty excited to just run her i'm happy that she's still alive and exists for you to get back and that goes right back to the point i was talking about like if you if you share it there's that potential that that one person still has it like my buddy who gave me his cherry pie cut uh he actually gave me his blue dream cut a while ago and i gave him back his blue dream when his blue dream mother died so it's like what goes around comes around and it might just be a guy with a little closet grow or whatever, but if they, you know, care about the plant and love the plant, they're going to hang on to it and uh, make sure they preserve that genetic because it's for me, like this is a medicine. It means a lot to my life. So to be able to have a simple way to maintain a healthy garden, it's uh, awesome to be able to preserve somebody's genetics and, and pass them around. Also, if you, uh, you give somebody you trust some of your good strains, 
you have uh, like a few years ago, I had a, just a, I brought one in my room, didn't, it got a little lazy, had it in the corner and uh, it, it had a, a, I don't know if, what kind of mite it was, but it was a bad one. And I literally just tore everything down and I only lost one because my buddy had all the stuff. I got it all back from him and it was just like a start over. So that's another uh, little uh, trick there. Couldn't agree it's more. Sort of, oh, sorry. No, no, you go ahead. It's sort of relevant. I've told this story before, but long story short, I knew a guy who called me in to help him out with a pathogen problem. He seemed to have some sort of fungal growth on a plant that, according to him, he had been keeping for like 15, 20 years. Silver strand number seven, he called it. I remember that. And I don't know the veracity of that claim, but I do know that a plant that's so old, you know, eventually it's just gonna, it's gonna cave out and, or cave in rather. And um, yeah, I think sharing kind of helps you sort of reach that problem. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard some clone claims like uh, Chem 91 from 1991 is the chem dog and that's still going around today. And I don't know if it got tissue cultured or something that kept it going, but there's also like other um, Chem D and Chem 4 and Chem Sister. So I think maybe it might not be the original Chem 91 that's still going around. I, could, I can't verify and say like, oh yeah, that's the Chem 91 or the Chem D. Like it's tough to tell the difference between some of that stuff. No, I believe you can keep a cut around for 20 years without having too many issues. Well, this sure. is 30, 29, I guess. It's right. 2020 right now, and that was 1991. And I some mean, people actually have claims of even older stuff. I think Romulan, yeah, some people claim goes back even longer, which I, it may be possible. I've, I haven't seen it in person myself. You keep them happy. They'll keep going. A lot of plants do have a, a remarkable capacity for longevity. So I'm, I'm sure that the possibility is certainly there. Well, it's also probably been been recloned off itself, and and it's not the same sort of original root mass, original plant in that sense. Mm, that's uh, definitely true. Yeah, so you can I agree keep, with that. You can keep plants going for quite a while by just taking another clone off of them. I've seen a, a six year old plant, like a the same root mass, same mother. It was a Cinderella ninety nine that was relatively small, and by the time that sixth or seventh year came around, it was like all the way at the roof and like propped up with crazy amounts of bamboo stakes and had shaved legs. But they take it out every summer and let it regenerate under the sun, and that seemed to be enough to keep it going. But it wasn't as long as some of those other claims. Yeah, I was talking about clone of a clone of a clone keeping it. I wasn't talking about keeping one plant for 20, 30 years. That would seem impossible, yeah. Even the clone of the clone of the clone, I wonder about cellular senescence, uh, basically like what happens at the end of the harvest, you see the fade. I wonder if like something about being grown out over and over and over again, maybe it has infinite capability, but I just have to imagine like, let's say a million years down the line, even if we kept it path pathogen free, I just have to imagine somewhere the DNA has to break down or start to uh, get worse. That's yeah, why. epigenetic drift does happen, and you would expect that that could eventually cause problems. But you should be able to do several sort of uh, copies before you'd run into that problem, and you could keep each then generation of of that copy around for quite a while. Um, it, it's certainly pretty typical, I think, to keep mothers for several years. So um, we're not you know you can slow down that whole clone of a clone process okay so i asked the chat to get ask us questions and grow green has 
provided two. Uh, the first one is what light schedule is best recommended for clones? 24 or 18.6 till roots develop? Question mark. Well, in the beginning, I would recommend 24-7 no matter what. And, uh, you know, I don't know about 18. I wouldn't do that. Um, if I was going to try and save some money and want it like, like in the summertime, I'll do uh, 24 just so that uh, like, you know, that hot time of the day between like two and six, I can uh, help my room cool down and stuff. But uh, me, myself, uh, I have a little experience with clones and, and especially in the beginning, I recommend 24 seven if you can. I would recommend whatever's easier for you. Um, everybody's situation is different. Um, in my situation, for example, I'm running 18.6 because I don't do anything special for clones. I throw them in a clone dome and throw them in my bedroom. They're just off in the corner, off somewhere. Actually, I have a shelf built, so they're not even taking floor space. It's, it's off, off to the side on a shelf, and it's just getting a little bit of side lighting, and it enjoys the same light that it gets in veg. I got to throw this out there, but I personally feel the cannabis space is going to be moving towards seeds as much as i love my keeper cuts i've got a cherry pie and a j1 that i treasure and i've been preserving but um i think in 10 years from now a lot of these cuts that people think are like the keeper of today are going to be long forgotten i think there will be like one or two like a, a cookies or an og kush or a gorilla glue that really shines through like chem dog there's those few that really shine but i think more and more breeding work that's done we're going to get even better and better stuff. Like I've already seen it happening for the past, especially with autoflowers, for example. Granted, you can't clone them, but their quality has drastically improved in the past two years, let alone in the past five or 10. So I just imagine photo periods and, and cannabis in general is going to keep getting so much better that the, the gold's really in the hunt, like doing what Spartan, myself, and many others do is just popping seeds over and over and over because there's probably that unicorn out there that's better than that cut that's being sold at the dispensary and people are going to be over by the end of the season, maybe the end of the year, whatever. So I'm curious what you guys think about maybe the transition towards seed and uh, away from clone in a, a longstanding clone community, I guess. Well, I imagine that eventually we'll have like, quote unquote, like elite cultivars like we do of agricultural crops now. I don't know what the plus minus on when that's going to happen. For all I know, it's already kind of in development and I wouldn't be surprised if that's what uh, somebody says on the panel right now. Brandon, do you have thoughts on that? Clones versus uh, seeds moving forward? Um, well, I think that with genetic assisted breeding that the productivity and the consistency in seeds uh, will greatly be improved. Um, and I think that <clears throat> that can definitely uh, help, you know, large facilities and stuff like that. But when it comes down to it, like if I do a phenol hunt and I go through, you know, a thousand plants and I find something that is that unicorn. People are going to probably want that unicorn as well. Um, so I think that they'll always, it's, I don't think it's going to change much. I think that the breeding will change a bit through advancement and technology. Um, but I think that the market for clones will still exist because people will still want those elite cuts, you know, yeah, I think in that sense, it could almost be like fashion where like each season uh, there's a new hype or hot thing in, in shoes or clothing or, or whatever, music. And uh, 
the trends sort of come and go and then there's the things that stick around like some people still listen to the beatles and love it and they're yeah. totally happy with it and i, I respect like, that you know, levi's jeans right they've been around since the 1800s they're still around today uh, and then you have stuff where it's like, okay, every single season they have to drop a new line to stay relevant in marketing. But it's it's the same thing. There's going to be, like Spartan said before about the former, right? There's going to be those people who have been doing this a really long time that are always going to be able to put out a, a really high quality product that people are going to enjoy. And in those cases, I think that if the quality speaks for itself, I don't think they'll have to focus too much on, on the marketing aspect. Um, I believe in kind of what I've seen, it's really the people who are the largest that need the marketing because they need to, to be able to sell a, a lot larger amount of product. And when it comes to quality, quality, um, quality suffers when you scale if you don't have the right people in place that know how to properly maintain um the quality control aspect of the of the cultivation so i think that you can scale i think that you can scale and still have a really really high quality product top shelf product but i think it's all also contingent on the people who are who are operating and i think that um you know it's it's one of those things where if your workers don't care about their work then your business is going to suffer and that is the root of it. Like not just your lead cultivator, but all the people that work under them, you want like passionate people that really care about the plant that you don't want people to just see it as like a job. Oh, I work at a, a grow. You want those, that passionate people. Cause that, those are the people that are basically reflecting your company. I want to really echo that statement. Um, when I've worked with people professionally, that's like the number one problem. So I'm an I for, I'm an IPM specialist, integrated pest management. I should probably say that more often every session because we have new people every day, uh, every week I should say. But when I work with people with regards to pest control, the biggest issue that I can't solve is low morale or something akin to it that basically disallows your people from like being optimal at their at their task. And I think a big part of that is like passion. If somebody's very passionate about the particular discipline of cannabis cultivation or plant cultivation in general, then um, it's a, it's such a it's such a great uh, force multiplier. Uh, if they don't care at all, that but they're still professional, that can still be good. If they don't like their work, then yeah, it's like what can you do? It's it's not. It's like work. the DMV. Yeah, but back to um, see the clones. But Jack, I think uh, clones will maintain just out of consistency for like um, growers for dispensaries and stuff. You know that you know what you're gonna get if you grow from seed every single time. The seeds have to be damn stable. I mean, you can get close to. But in the future, so, they're, they're gonna get even better and better. Well, yeah. Then I was also gonna say, like uh, Brandon was saying, with genetic marker assisted, they get way more stable. And then once they start GMO, then they could do. You know, they can make whatever they want, really. Do you think yeah, that... Just a couple of things, if I could jump in on this. Um, the, the clones, I think, used to have much more of an advantage than they do anymore. I still think they, they have an advantage in, in some areas over seeds, but I think it's eroding. And um, seeds are poised to really pass 
um, clones in, in relation to the stability issues and in relation to like the, the um, genetic certainty. Um, that might take a little while for, for some strains, but I think that there are some strains now that are becoming increasingly stable in the, the um, seeds. Um, and, you know, in terms of availability of the, the propagation material, it used to be so much easier to just take clones and you'd know what you'd get. And the seeds were really sketchy. Um, as the seeds become much more available and sort of much better, um, seeds offer some advantages over clones in terms of uh, that senescence that Jack's talking about, sort of the life cycle processes. Um, plants are more vigorous when they're young and they're sort of um, you can definitely see that the difference between how fast a, a three node seedling grows versus how fast a, a, like a clone with three nodes grows. Yeah, you can't argue that. I just seen that recently too. Yeah. It looks good over there, Spartan. You uh, almost finished up trimming or you still got some more work to yeah, do? Yeah, this was one, this is one plant. So this is one plant of the blue cough here. I don't, I'm about ready to weigh it up, see what it is. But, uh, I'm guessing at least four. The last one did four ounces. This looks about the same. I got another question from the chat. Um, while we look at Spartan's beautiful buds, somebody asked, and I, I'm not able to find who it was, but they asked, do we, anybody have experience using air purifiers as well as a carbon filter to help manage the smell? That's something I haven't done yet, but I've seen like uh, one of the UK growers, I think GMO, Shout out to GMO on growing with my fellow lads. He has like one of those Dyson fans, I think, that has a air purifier in it. And he also, I think, uses carbon filters as well. Yeah, I can. I, I've always used uh, carbon filters in my uh, in my grows because they were always a little bit bigger, my home grows, um, and just to mitigate some of the smell. But it's also um, really good for just cleaning the air. Having a carbon filter can help uh, keep down just all kinds of dust and spores and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I would just run, I'd have like a big, like four foot um, one sitting on the ground with a, with a fan right on it, just pumping air into it. And it just, it just helps, helps clean the air, helps, you know, mitigate a little bit of the, the odor. That's funny you say that, Brandon. I often think of my grow tent as being like our whole house air filter. Um, and it certainly has sort of uh, reduced the amount that we need to dust and stuff like that. It, it, it literally cleans the, the air in our condo. Yeah, I just experience. actually saw uh, a little thing. NASA ran this experiment. Um, and they found out that if you have more plants in your house, that it, like, I don't know, there's better energy, the air is cleaner. Um, it just, it was just like this psychological experiment that did, and uh, it's definitely beneficial to have plants in the, in the house. Yeah, and it's not just the sort of rapid, the vigorously growing plants that are processing the carbon dioxide and all of that, but the, the carbon filters and, and the intake filters, you know, I have intake and pre-filters as well, that become absolutely disgustingly filthy in, in our air here in beautiful Los Angeles. Um, and I have to like sort of swap all of those out. But the, the fact of running as much air through that tent as I do um, means that it's sort of serving like the whole house air filter, you know, that's cleaning the air for us to breathe as well. 
and plants, even house plants, uh, they serve that purpose. But also just looking at like a green living thing is beneficial for people. So to have that versus like a robotic looking air filter that you're going to have to replace, you know, filters or whatever, clean it every so often. I think maintaining a plant is a much better relationship to have than like maintaining a, a device over time. A lot of people, I think, would benefit from having a, a garden indoors. You know, it's not cannabis. You know, uh, the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, um, they have a botany department, and I know that they're working on a plant that can um, uh, increase its production of subarin by taking carbon out of the atmosphere, sort of as a carbon sink, trying to make a plant uh, that already does it really well, do it better, and then planting it in mass. But I would love to have like a natural carbon filler. Like, could you imagine like, if they were able to breed like a, a plant that was particularly good at it, especially in small spaces, and you can just grow that and you don't even need to replace the filter. When maybe, you mentioned that, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'll just say like, and maybe like it creates like wood or something and you can like, I don't know, use that for whatever you want. Or maybe it grows food, you know, there you go. When you mentioned that, I wanted to look into it because I was like, well, as an aspiring cannabis plant breeder, this is actually something that could like change the future of the world. So I tried to find like any markers that would show like if cannabis was producing high amounts of subarin. But uh, if anybody has any information on that, please send it to me because I failed in all my looking through scholarly research articles and even just like random internet Googling. There's like no information on cannabis and subarin production. But I figured like hemp, they always talk about how it can be a good carbon uh, neutral or even like positive crop if it's grown with the proper agricultural practices so i sort of had a little bit of hope that if we have a certain type of hemp that can be grown at scale that can help reduce the uh, amount of carbon in the atmosphere this is uh this topic about smell it, for me this is one of those situations where i feel like i i just think different than everybody else or something because for me i want the smells so to me, you have to, you know, look into it. What is the smell? The smell is probably your terpenes flashing off in, in, in heat. So that's what you're smelling. So those are terps that you're smelling. So to remove those, you're removing that from the situation. I want to keep as much terps as I can. So maybe they'll, maybe they'll, maybe they'll, you know, my point of attack would be if you're getting smell, your room's not sealed enough seal your room if you have a carbon filter running in your room and it's the right size for your room and you're still smelling stuff your room's not sealed so seal up your room better get in there on the, whatever if you're growing in a tent and you're trying to use a carbon filter to filter the air well i'm sorry but the room the tent's sitting in is going to smell so at least the room that your tent is sitting in insulate that or you know there's there's steps you can take um i have a carbon filter in my flower room that barely i usually i i barely ever turn on once it gets close to the end of flower i might turn it on but otherwise it doesn't even run because i just sealed my flower room so do a really good job of sealing up your room uh you're going to have to look into either exchanging air for co2 or bringing in a co2 source but um the i think that if you opt out of exchanging air and you can get a co2 source in there like even if it's a mushroom bag or uh, co2 tanks is really my is really my recommendation there, even over burners. Um, but if you could get that going in there like that, that's going to be the best way. And you're going to save a lot of money on not having to buy carbon filters over and over and over and over and over again. Um, it's also good for your IPM. 
less yep, bugs get in. And that's another good thing too, as far as carbon filters go. Some people don't realize that they have to be changed. They're not good forever. Um, they're usually good for maybe about a year with constant use. Um, I wouldn't want to push them much past a year, year and a half. You'll, you'll know everything will start smelling again, but, um, yeah, I think your best avenue to try to step away from carbon filter would be to just seal the room, contain the smell, keep it there. Don't try to like remove it so much as just keep it in that room. Because if you're, I just picture my, all my plants just sitting in there, marinating in the turps, just marinating in the room and the turps just because they're trapped. So uh, I don't know, I could be wrong, but when those lights turn off, I just picture all that stuff condensing back down onto my plants. So it could be all bullshit, but uh, I don't know. I do okay. I think the same way, honestly. And I, I don't really actually know the physical chemistry about whether they like float back down or anything like that, but it's a good visual. Yeah. Yeah. Like a marination. Yeah. I mean, I just think that when you're trying to, usually it's not the, it's, it's not the gardener who is like offended by the smell otherwise they wouldn't be growing the plant. It's somebody on the outside. So enjoy that smell. Don't try to get rid of it. Don't try to clean it out. Uh, I would uh, just seal that room and keep the smell in the room as opposed to trying to remove the smell. Yeah. When you're talking about setting up a, a sealed grow Spartan. So and, and dehumidification and stuff like that. I think that that is yeah. the best way to to sort of prevent smell. So if you're really dealing with a a difficult uh, legal regime or you know difficult neighbors or whatnot, um, and expense isn't an option that, or isn't a problem, then um, seal up the space, um, completely seal the space, add air conditioning, add dehumidification, add carbon dioxide. Um, add all the meters that you need in order to sort of measure that and, and make sure that you're maintaining well-conditioned air. Um, but then you can completely turn off the, the ventilation and just keep everything inside there. Um, the second best though, and, and sort of, I think we're all a little bit stammering at the question because carbon filters are really effective um, at, at really dramatically reducing the smell. So if you have a, a, a tent or other space that's operating under negative air pressure with an extraction fan pulling through a carbon filter, um, that, in my opinion, that solves it for like, you know, 95% of growers in terms of the smell issue. With the occasional uh, extremely stinky crop that'll sink through, that's why it says 95% because some stuff... It, you need a double carbon filter. You need one in the tent, and then you need one outside the tent because it's just so dank. But most carbon Talk filters... Talk about a great problem right? to have, huh? Yeah, of course, yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> fair enough. I will take that challenge. I'll figure out how to make it work. If that's going to be the strain that I'm growing, I will say that. I, I got to say, I do think that uh, you can grow high terpene cannabis even with a carbon filter in the room, so I'm not sure if that takes away from the idea that like they're floating and then marinating because i think that applies for like curing like i, I don't want to uh have too much like airflow over them like blowing off any of the terpenes or whatever but um i don't know I, I think there's a lot of science still to come out about this and i'm happy that we're able to discuss all the different ins and outs of it i have a question though getting back to the seeds versus clones debate at least uh do you think that in the near future, the things about the new cultivars that will come out, 
you think the traits that people breed for will be more mm, well what do you think they are now and do you think that they will be more driven by what the consumer wants or driven by what the and i'm talking about end consumer here versus uh what the growers want uh like what would make their lives easier like morphological changes yeah I see a, a, a bifurcation of the market towards the sort of commercial side and towards the craft side. I think what's good for commercial operations, um, and they have a different set of criteria in terms of what they're looking for, for yield, for processability, um, for those kinds of concerns that are less important to sort of uh, craft cultivators, home growers. My thoughts on the whole thing, I forgot, I didn't say anything about this, and, and I had a couple things I wanted to say. Um, one of the things, I don't think that seeds are taken over commercially anytime soon because of the instability of it. I'm sure eventually they'll get to be to where they can offer some kind of a stable seed, but I don't know that you'll ever be able to offer a seed as stable as a clone. I mean, and when we're in a highly, I'm speaking from my experience here in Michigan, but in a highly regulated market where we're tested on so many different parameters, um, we, it's a pretty huge advantage to know what you're getting when you go to grow something. And a clone gives you that. At least it gives you an idea of what you're going to what you're going to get at the end. Um, you know, why I say that is is plant morphology is super important. We can't grow a strain with a super um, gigantic bud in a commercial setting because you're just asking to fail microbials because it's going to contain, it's going to hold more moisture and it's going to be just more surface area for them to hide out on, you know? So there's a lot of different factors when it comes to commercial market. And that's, what's going to drive, I think the market the most, cause that's volume. And um, so until they can get to the point to where they can guarantee results with the seeds. And even then um, I don't know that, I don't know that, you know, I see so many people struggle popping seeds. <laughs> that, but this is such an interesting question. You got me thinking about Spartan. Who do you think is buying the seeds? Is it really commercial operators at this no, point think, that are buying seeds or is it home growers? Well, what I'm saying it's at both, this point, right? it's home, at this point, it's home growers. Commercial right. operators are buying them. I well, can tell you, let me just tell you our situation. We're all buying them at, at, at Mint Canical, the, the breeder, or I mean, the growers are, and we're, trying them out in our own gardens and if we find something special we pass it amongst ourselves so that we can try you know see if it's good right. enough, you know what i mean and that's that legal kind of in your market where our market that's not you need to have it track and trace from the very beginning so a lot of people out here have to start from seed for a certain unless they're buying from a licensed clone dispensary we can buy from caregivers so basically we can be a caregiver <laughs> or we know caregivers and you know what i'm saying pass them the cut they pass it back to us commercial I, that's a luxury I wish we could have in the California market. Unfortunately, we do not. But uh, if the seeds get to the point to where they're stable, I think that that's when we go outside. That's when no longer does it have to be indoors because now we can actually stick them outside in the ground and be okay with them. I think um, security is going to be an issue. But, you know, what do you put a fence up <laughs> like they do around the prisons or something? But there's a lot of... Uh autoflower hemp or not even just hemp like just general autoflower cannabis that's all being grown from seed and at commercial large-scale outdoor and i don't know if they're just processing it all into concentrate or something but i've also seen humboldt seeds is one they guaranteed over 30 percent total cannabinoids from a seed line and they had a few different commercial facilities run it and every single 
one of the seeds of the hundred seeds that they popped. They ran all from seed, a hundred different phenos. They just labeled it all the same, whatever cultivar. It was Supertron. And some of them tested like up close to the forties, but they were all like 30% above. And for a lot of people, unfortunately, the markets aren't educated enough to like know about terpenes and minor cannabinoids. So people are still just buying with this sort of prohibition model of like, we're moonshiners. It's like how much THC by volume can you fit into that eighth or that ounce or whatever it is that they're buying because terpenes volatize, they go away. If it gets too hot, transportation, it's gone. THC sticks around a lot. So people are like, if I want more bang for my buck. I want the one that's going to hang around. And if it converts, it's only going to convert to CBN, which gets you kind of stoned too. It gets you really sedated. I think that's kind of the biggest thing. And that's why I like to do as many shows as I can and try to get the word out there. We can't, even myself, you know, I live in a bubble, you know, I live, I, I've got weed all around me all the time. That That's not, the, that's not, you know, the normal American and um, the normal consumer even. So like what you're saying, they look at price first usually. And, um, you know, to them, weed is weed is weed. They don't know anything about a strain name and what they want is convenience. And that's why you see pens are being really popular or pre-rolls. How popular are pre-rolls? Um, so there's going to be a point to where basically to ask the question seed versus clone, the answer to that question is, well, how much does each cost? And when that seed can, if this is, I forgot to put the caveat, if the seed is bred to a point to where we can get expected results from the seed without having to pop it to know what it is. But if it can, if it can equal a clone in that in, in consistency, then it's just going to be what's cheaper because that's what it's going to, and then that price, people are going to start voting with their dollars and that's what's going to drive the market. I think with hemp, we're seeing that right now with uh, the commercial cultivation of hemp, they use clones to backfill any feminized hemp seed that ends up male or hermaphrodite. They call it and they replant with a hemp clone that they know is a female. They have a mother stock going, but they use both. I think the answer is always going to be both for large scale because you pop a thousand seeds, you find that unicorn, like Brandon mentioned, you're going to want to hang on to that. It's still going to be special. It might just be special for a month or six months or a year, but it's special. And it, it, even if people buy a hundred seeds of that same breeder, they might not find one with that specific phenotype that you found. So as long as you can keep that in house, or if you want to share it, share it, you can even sell clones in a lot of places. So like that might be a way that you make your money back on the seeds that you invested in. So there's a lot of different business approaches and avenues that it can uh, go about. But I can for, for, for sure see there will always be a connoisseur market, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know how huge it's going to be. So there's always going to be a place for craft cannabis, I think. And, and what's going to be common among craft cannabis is, is going to be seed popping. They're going to be pheno hunting and trying to find that special pheno that you can't get anywhere else. I totally agree with that. We, we see that. I see that all the time in um, uh, hobbyist uh, cultivation, the California River Fruit Growers Association, um, pepper plants. There are tons of pepper fan pages where people are crossing their own peppers. It's really cool. Tomatoes as well. I mean, I, I had a to- homegrown tomato from one of the families I work for. They grew in their backyard and my fiance and I both agree it was one of the best tomatoes we've ever had. And you just don't get that in the supermarket. So I think like people will always, like you said, there's always going to be a space for the craft. Even if it's a very small space, I'm happy to know that like we're going to be in that category. We're not going to be the ones going into the dispensaries buying a gram at a time or a pre-roll. Maybe we'll go in if we're between harvest or whatever, or we're out, whatever reason we're between growing, if you've moved or whatever, 
but we're not going to be the uh, the regular who's going in there multiple times a week or a month or whatever for the most part because we're able to grow our own. And uh, that's everyone listening to the show, I imagine, is trying to do the same. So shout out to y'all. Uh, definitely in the chat. Big shout out to Big Jar Grows again, Fumidar and the Flavors, uh, Baked Pone. Thank you guys all for joining us. And uh, if you have any questions, chat, definitely feel free to tag any of the panel members that you see here on the screen or that you've heard talk because uh, we'll try to get to those answers. Now, I did get my uh, harvest. So I had two, I had nine plants total in a four by four. I had two blue cough. I wanted to get those done today. And that's what I did. This, this one was the first plant. She weighed in at 117 grams. And then this one was the one I just finished trimming. And she went in at 132. So she surprised me. She got a little bit bigger. So that, I don't know if you, I'm sure Jack remembers the story of Blue Cough. I should just have him tell it to me. But um, <laughs> Blue Cough was gifted to me by the late Subcool. So it's a special strain for me. I'll probably be holding it for a while. And it just so happens to be one of my favorite flavors in the garden as far as just the smell. It's just, I love it. And it's more of a, it's more of a daytime strain, I guess. It's not a strong and heavy hitter, like puts you to sleep kind of a strain, but for that daytime strain, I just love it, man. It's like the best, the best flavors that really, it, it's one of those ones that it tastes a lot like the smell, which is awesome when that happens. You know, I was going to ask somebody to tell specifically you Spartan to talk more about the blue cough. And then you started talking about it, it was great. Um, but can you tell me more about the flavors and aromas? So for me, the blue cough is the, the lineage is blueberry, DJ short blueberry, and that's times uh, Kyle Cushman. Cushman. Yeah, the strawberry cough. And I don't get strawberry at all. So I think it's it's going to be more blueberry leaner, except for it's more like plant morphology wise, more like what I'm seeing from the strawberry cough. So it's really strange to see like the morphology of one, but the hurt profile of the other but to me it is a good combination of both but i think it leans more towards blueberry when we're talking about both smell and and flavor uh, profile and then there's some kind of a at the very end at the back end there's some kind of a weird gassiness that comes in from who knows where that's the strawberry cough uh, i was okay. telling you about the jack jack the ripper i grew that was crossed with strawberry cough it's called strawberry daiquiri super super tight inner node spacing from like 21 days into veg it smelled like gasoline like the earliest i've ever had a plant smelling like gas and thankfully by like week three of flower it started to really smell like sweet strawberries and by the end it was like strawberries with a little touch of lemon and and i really love that stuff but uh, that's where that gas is coming from that uh, strawberry cough side strawberry cough nice and speaking of tight nose spacing, I've never seen tighter nose spacing than that Mac one. Oh my God. But, uh, when you guys were talking about earlier about the, um, you know, the more connoisseur cuts and things like that, Mac one's a perfect example of that. And I actually brought this up in a chat that we have for, uh, the Michigan bros grow show has a grow off going. So there's a grow off chat where we get to interact with a lot of people that are in the grow off, actually, you know, growing the strains out. And they were all saying when I was telling them that I'd gotten the cut gifted to me, shout out Michigan, Matt, thank you. Uh, that was back in the fall of last year. And I am just now probably about, uh, probably tomorrow, I'll be throwing those into flower tomorrow or the next day for the first time. I did grow, uh, I did take cuts off of them. So they did grow up and get cuts taken off of them. So that might've slowed them down slightly, but I mean, we're talking, 
extremely slow vegging plants and a difficult plant to, to grow well, to make it look happy even. It's, it's like if you go in, you, it looks happy for a change. You're, you're happy to see that until <laughs> you figure her out. And they were saying in that chat that what, why would anybody want to grow that? It can't be that good. Even if it's the greatest taste ever, it's not worth that kind of trouble. Well, I've, I've had the pleasure of smoking this and I liked it quite a bit. And um, the thing that attracts me about it is, is nobody wants to deal with that. Nobody wants to deal with it to get that good end product. So that's what makes it rare and more attractive to me. <laughs> so a plant that no seed breeder is going to seed is going to pick for that would be completely thrown away. You know what I'm saying? Um, it wouldn't, you know, it's not an attractive quality that that super slow veg. So again, there's always going to be, there's always going to be uh, a space for those unicorns. You know what I mean? And if you find one, hold on to that thing. I got to say, I just actually had the pleasure of trying cap uh, capulator, the breeder, I actually had some flour from him himself because I've had the Mac five times before that from different legal uh, permitted farms in California. Now it's always like not super impressed. I'd say like five out of 10 to like seven out of 10 was like the best I'd give it as far as like flavor potency. It always looked super frosty and really dense for sure. But uh, I was always let down by like the flavor and the high. But after trying his, I would say like I can see why other people like it. It's just not for me. Like it's good. Uh, it has flavor. It's definitely got some potency and it's undeniable the bag appeal. It's so frosty and it's so dense. But um, like Spartan said, like a lot of people, I don't think are going to grow it well, even uh, if they follow like the rule of the Mac was you only give it to gardeners that like you respect. So I think like the whole purpose of that was to try and keep it like good quality because maybe he knew how hard it was to grow. So he only wanted like the best growers growing it so that it wouldn't get a bad reputation. Uh, unfortunately, I think people ended up breaking that rule and started selling it and just uh, mass supplying it to basically anybody. And the quality went down like with any big cut, Blue Dream, Gorilla Glue, whatever. Name any of those big cuts. They've all seen quality drop off by getting commercially produced by growers that aren't as qualified. But I'm glad I finally got to try it from like the source himself. And now I can like, no, yeah, okay, that's I, not the one for me. I don't really want to put names out there because I don't know everybody well enough that they want to be shouted out or not so i'm not going to say that but this comes with a pretty good pedigree i'm pretty confident that it's something that got passed from matt uh, from from cap to somebody else but i mean it's been countless people before so who knows what's happened to it and what it's picked up along the way so it's probably not exactly the same but it's got to be pretty fucking close a lot closer than a seed from a from a from a mac pack i'm growing some mac right now and I actually have some Mac one flower that I picked up today and it's the Mac one that I'm growing smells really, really similar to um, the weed that I picked up today. Um, I have a couple of different phenos. They're all stacking pretty hard too. I don't, I don't, but again, I, it's the terpene profile is, is complex, but it's not as loud as let's say like the Limerilla or some of the other varieties that are in there. And that's what I really look for. Like I want to be completely overwhelmed by the scent. I don't care about the, like when I'm looking at uh, other people's cannabis to consume, I'm not like bag appeals, good and stuff. Density. I care nothing about density. I can tell right away. If your butt is too dense, it's PGR weed, you know, 
it's uh, it's chem it's chemical weed because in organics that doesn't typically happen. Um, but that's what I always look for. That's what I breed for. I mean, terpenes for me are so are the number one thing that I look for. Um, you know, for my personal consumption, obviously that's not the case for everybody. So like when I'm doing pheno hunting, um, that's at the top of the list, but I also have to take things into consideration like bag appeal and ye and yield as well. Brandon, I, I want to, I'm just interested. I was just interested to get the Mac in the organic situation through a few cycles and see if it maybe improves. I just have a weird hope in the back of my head. It might be a fool's hope, but I'm hoping that maybe it's just uh, not, maybe it's a really organic loving plant that hates hydroponics and that's why it grows like crap. I want to say that um, that's probably why I like a lot of your stuff, Brandon, because I'm, I'm the same way. I like it. I like what Jack says. I like if the name matches what it smells and tastes like, preferably. And if it's really strong, I'm okay. I like complexity, but I also just like a strong uh, taste and smell, even if it's a single or dual note. Um, I'm the same way with food for that matter. I, I want to give a shout out to uh, just a guy I follow on Instagram because Brandon, you were talking about those really dense buds. And I used to think that too, especially when I first became aware of PGRs or uh, plant growth regulators, you'd see some of those really rounded buds that are like rock hard. And when you drop it, it sounds like a marble hit the floor. Um, but there's a dude on Instagram, T's, T-E-A-S, four terps, uh, T-E-R-P-S underscore. And I know he grows in nothing but organics, but he r runs high pressure sodium still. And I think he runs them pretty close to the plant and like the structure of the nugs, it looks like PGR weed, like when he's done trimming it, but it's just super dense, like rock hard uh, yeah, baseball nugs. Some, some strains can make really rock hard nugs, like yeah. even on the inorganics for sure. Yeah, no, I've had, I've had varieties that do that because of the genetics, like the purple kush was like that. Um, but typically what I see is, uh, you know, it's again, it's all contingent on genetics and the farmer, but uh, I typically see um, the weed that is rock hard like that. What ends up happening is once it dries out, if you go to break it up, it just turns to dust, right? Like we don't, I don't want to see that because I want to be able to have like a certain type of consistency if I'm rolling or if I'm packing a bong hit, that way I can have the desired, you know, like burn consistency basically you know because if it's too fine it burns too hot and that can make it harsh um and so being able to have the material like a certain consistency i think really improves both the taste and flavor uh because it doesn't get as hot as it's burning yeah, I, I want to agree with you in terms of density doesn't necessarily mean quality. And people like say like rock hard nugs as though that means they're going to be awesome too. Um, I, I think that those are two different sort of metrics. And there's a, a, a certain level of density that I find. Um, and sometimes even when I'm just trimming the plant, I'm sort of like, okay, this is going to be good. Um, you know, one, one thing that keeps coming up to me when you're thinking about taste and stuff, now that I vape everything, um, 
I, I find there's such a tremendous difference in how long different strains last in the vape. Like, so how many hits I can get off of them is something that I've noticed much more since I've started vaping than when I was ever smoking anything because it kind of smokes the same amount of time one way or the other. But the difference between like a, a good resinous, uh, you know, trichome rich um, bud that you grind up and vape. And I, I mean, I can sort of, when I'm doing it by myself, I can have to split that across like three sessions, one bowl, um, keep turning the vape off and like chilling out for a while. Or some of the other strains that are, are not as sort of resinous or trichome encrusted. And, you know, they, they only give you a few hits out of the vape. Um, so I've been able to sort of go back through and reanalyze a lot of my earlier harvests in terms of what really is good, what has sort of more power to the punch from uh, doing those vapes. I listened to last week's episodes. I was, I was sad that I missed that when you guys were all talking about vaping. Yeah, I love uh, vaporizing. I think it definitely shows you a lot about the flavor and the uh, potency of the cannabis. Have you, you noticed the same thing, though, that some strains will give you a whole lot more out of the same amount in the vaporizer? I think that often can be due to the amount of trichomes, but it can also be due to the dampness of the bud, like a much longer cured bud that's super, super bone dry, uh, even like if it's properly cured, if it's just got all the moisture out of it, that's going to vape a little bit uh, less of a cloud than one that's yeah. like harvested it, last week. I mean, I have, I'm doing this all with some old buds. I mean, say so a lot of my bud is over a year old in, in terms of how long it's been curing. So it's all pretty stable at, in that regard. And there really is a big difference I've found. So Sorry, then that's no. gotta be, that's gotta be the resin content. Then I was going to say like what, Brush, uh, what Brandon was saying about when you get, it looks like those PGR buds are like rolled on a screen. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? And it, yeah, it, does. it looks like, like if you, right. And if you pinch it, it turns into like a powder, like you were saying. You but almost I can't even get the stem out of it. With the moisture content too. Like probably some of those are forced dried because it's so dense maybe that, you know, it's dry in the middle more than we're used to as like uh, curing and drying properly. You get a little bit of sponge. And uh, you know what? Someone made an argument to me that the buds are too the nugs are too tight. There's not enough room for actual resin to grow on the leaves. So what do you guys think about that? Uh, I have data from a few hash makers that they like the foxtail resin bud versus the tighter bud, because if you think about it like this, if you were but to it close, comes your, off. Yeah, it but comes you close off your hand like a, a ball into a fist and you dunk it into a bucket of sugar and then you lift it up and then you rinse off the sugar and you measure that versus taking your hand and spreading out all your fingers, all those fingers have more surface area. So it gets 360 degree coating on each finger versus having your hand balled up into a fist. That yeah, balled but up fist is like the tight nut versus the foxtail that's got the no, fingers. no, because the resin grows from the material on the inside of your hand. You know, it grows from the plant material. It's not on the outside like you're sticking your right. hand in sugar. But, but I understand what you're saying. I think that's more with bubble hashers, uh, water hasher makers, because if it's really tight, dense nug, that water won't get in there to break off those resin glands, or they'll stick in together with each other. You know. Yeah, it could be. I'm, I'm, I was referencing uh, ice water hash making, and I think that for people that are making like hydrocarbon, like CO2 extraction or um, butane extraction, they can just pack up the tube with basically any type of material. And uh, right. depending on how much resin is there, they're going to get a lot more of it. And if they properly purge out their stuff, they're, they're going to get much higher returns. Yeah, I'll say this. If, uh, if it's looser, I, I do believe you're going to get a little bit more. Um, that's just my opinion. And uh, about that point earlier, boy, PGR buds gross. Yeah. 
Those dosi dos, by the way, Jack, I would say is quite was quite trichomous and really, really dense, but in a good way. Yeah, that's definitely one of the more popular strains out here on the West Coast. And for good reason, I think it packs a lot of resin, good flavor. It, it looks nice in the bag, but it also has good effects and uh, doesn't yield terribly like a lot of the cookie varieties can. Did they yeah, change the, the name? Like, oh, say that again. I didn't hear you. Dosi Dos was one of the sort of frostiest strains that I've ever grown. It, it gives those sort of Instagram worthy buds with the sugar leaves totally encrusted in dense trichomes and everything. That's definitely I, what I experienced. Uh, do we, is Dosi Dos the name or did it change or something based on I, the fact that? It's a cross with um, Girl Scout cookies and. Face off OG, I think. It's grown, uh, it was bred locally here in the Portland, Oregon by Archive. Uh, I actually just uh, sourced a clone from that about four or five months ago. And yeah, it's definitely one of the one of the better ones I've grown in a long time. Dosey Dose number 55. Yeah. Um, that's a great, great, great plant. That was the last plant that I grew from clone um, from a local dispensary. I picked that up. So it's probably the same plant. I didn't want to interrupt too much, but I got to get going, guys. But I did want to share one more thing with you guys. Talking breeding, it reminded me of the... I watched, uh, shout out to Dog with the Hut's YouTube channel. He had the Ocean Grown guys on there. They were talking about breeding and Vader was on there. Checked, I thought this was interesting as hell. So he noticed that when he had... Um, so these are his strain. He had a, a Jedi uh, male. He put it in the breeding chamber to breed to a Jedi female and a Merlot, Merlot female. When he did that, he found out that the Merlot produced a normal amount of seeds, but the Jedi produced an unusually low amount of seeds. If he put the Jedi male in with the Jedi female, it produced the normal amount of seeds. So it's strange that that Merlot, that other strain, it's like, it's almost as if the um plant knows that it's better to genetically the mo most genetically diverse it's better to somehow produce get all the pollen over to the <laughs> to the I merlot think it could also whatever. be more stigma more stigma and more pistols on the uh, merlot than okay on the so then Jedi. so if you reverse it you would you would expect a different result no what i'm saying is i think one cultivar merlot may have a lot more seed accepting sexual parts on its oh, plant versus the yeah, jedi might only it's not as good at taking the pollen in so like but that's but that doesn't explain why that the seed production of the jedi went down so the merlot is is essentially a sticky trap and the jedi is like a piece of paper right so the i don't merlot well takes i don't know more. if you've seen have you ever seen vader's breeding chambers but uh i don't think there's ever a lack of pollen that's not an issue it's usually like insane the amounts of pollen in that, that whole chamber. It's ridiculous. I'm just saying the amount of pollen that can stick, especially if you're relying on wind pollination, the wind blowing around. I personally use a paintbrush to pollinate, so I drop it right on top of there. But if I was to let wind pollinate it, it's not going to have as heavy of a pollination on any particular spot versus if, you know, there's plenty of pollen. There's way more than enough. There's billions of pollen grains that go around even on a small plant. Yeah, so, so I guess more what than I'm enough. saying I'm is... saying I think the one's better at capturing it than the other one, perhaps. But what I'm saying is, is wouldn't you expect that if that if that was the case, but wouldn't you expect that to the both in both cases the Jedi would produce the same? 
why would it produce less when you just introduce a different strain? Do you how, feel that that one strain how, is just how tight, all the pollen away from the other strain? Is how tight were its controls? Maybe that one, the one was more uh, mature and could accept more pollen. Or closer the to the plant. Yeah. Or, you know, you know, know what I mean? Maybe he didn't grow as big of a, a Jedi plant as he did the first time. Or the yeah, Jedi plant now is not as healthy as it was the first time. There's a myriad like of reasons. Too many variables to really make a judgment call, I think. But it's definitely interesting. I, I, say, I do I think. Yeah, 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 definitely it. interesting definitely would have to ask him those questions to get those answers but uh, i thought it was super yeah super interesting and uh you know he thought it was enough to note it so i mean he's a he's a breeder has bred many many plants so i'm sure i always my ears always prick up when somebody who i know has been in the game for a while says something that they've never seen before or something they thought was odd or something that stood out those are the things i try to listen to <laughs> but yeah i gotta go man it's getting late so uh uh Love you guys. Love hanging out with you guys. I love shows like this where we just kind of just let the conversation do its own thing. We yeah. figure out the topic after it started. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's all my style, man. I, I, it's easy for me. I'm sitting here trimming. So uh, shout out to chat. <laughs> Girl love, guys. Uh, shout out to chat, too. I didn't shout you guys out. And uh, shout out to Michigan Girls Girl Show. That's where I'm headed. See you guys. Thanks for coming. Sorry. Dosi Dose is a OG KB Girl Scout cookie phenotype crossed with face off OG back crossed once. So that's the Dosi Dose official from Archive that Noah was mentioning earlier, right up in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, it sounds right to me too. I think that that's the same one I grew. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely some good stuff. I've actually I'm picking up a cut of it uh, right after the show. My buddy who grew it uh, has an extra one, so I'm gonna grab it just to have it in the stable, so to speak. Well, I think it's about that time. Wrap things up and do our our sign-offs now. Anybody have any other, were there any other questions floating around that we needed to get to? Uh, Somebody asked about subcool seeds, and I I don't actually sell them, but there is a website called Genetic Supply. um, And if you go to the Breeders Overstock section, they do carry all of his lines. Badger's Batch, uh, formerly Badger's Dank, who is the breeder, as well as Northstar are still uh, for a limited time supplying subcool uh, genetics. So if you're looking for that, I saw that in the chat. So I just wanted to shout that out before we close it out tonight. Cool. All right, well, I handled the the introduction. So I guess I will uh, take everybody uh, around the horn again. Um, before I do, I just wanted to mention, I just released a new YouTube video. It's been like almost two years since I posted a YouTube video, but I uh, posted a little tutorial about how to use our new uh, GrowLight calculator. So if anybody is interested in the GrowLight calculator or interested in watching me, I do a little screen capture video. Uh, head over to my my YouTube channel, but let me uh, throw it around. Um, let's go over to Zenthanol, Sync Angel, Matthew Gates. I really enjoyed the uh, session. I definitely am a fan of the um, lobby style that we have here at the podcast. Um, and I want to shout out the chat for having great questions. Um, and if you're interested in the integrated pest management uh, information that I have, you can find me at Zenthanol here on YouTube, the same account that I was commenting with, or at Sync Angel on Instagram. Okay, the American one. Let's let's go over to you. Sorry about that. I think your mic's open, so then after you uh, do your shout out, let's, let's. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, I thought it was quiet enough. Uh, I'm just the American one on YouTube and the American one with the Keens on uh, 
IG, but if you just search the American one on IG, look for the little guy with the American top hat, that's me. And uh, yeah, it was good chatting it up with you guys. It's always interesting. And uh, shout out to chat. Peace. And Shane. Yeah, and Shane. Cool. Thank you, Tao. Um, all right, Brandon. Brandon, thanks for your insights tonight. Thanks. Uh, it's always good to be here. You know, I like to be able to spend a couple hours with the panel members. Um, I, if you guys want to find uh, my work and follow me, you can find my profile on Instagram at rust.brandon. And there's a link in my bio for Majestic Craft Cannabis and for also Bokashi Earthworks, which is the company that I own, biofertilizer company. Um, thanks to the chat. I know I don't interact very much. I don't have a computer. I just have my phone and I have to use it for the communication. So, uh, but uh, thanks for having me guys. Um, I'll see you guys next week. All right. Thanks again, Brandon, for joining us. Um, all right, let's go. You guys are moving around on the screen on me now. Um, let's go to uh, predicative breeding, predicative breeding. Uh, thanks, Dr. MJ. Uh, yeah, really happy to be here. Uh, I tried to shed some info, at least as much as I could. Um, but I love doing this, you guys. And, uh, you know, giving back to the community is um, a very selfless thing to do. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that we get to help people. But if anyone's trying to find any of my work, uh, you can find me on all social media platforms at Kyle Breeder or Predicated Breeding. Uh, if you're looking for genetics, pbreeding.com. And uh, I'm looking forward to next week, you guys. Uh, everybody stay safe. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Kyle. Um, Noah, Noah the Grower. Yeah, thanks, uh, everybody, for showing up. Uh, had a good time. I had to run there for a little bit, but I made sure I got back as soon as I could. Um, I haven't been uh, posting that much on Instagram because I've uh, been kind of busy, but I uh, think I'm going to start um, just branching out a little bit from what I've been showing and maybe doing some cloning techniques, some uh, some scrogging techniques, some different techniques that I use and uh, bring some of that to my Instagram page. So if anybody's interested in that, I'm Noah the Grow with two E's on Instagram. You're more than welcome to come over, ask me any questions. I try and respond to everybody. Uh, thanks, uh, Jack, Dr. Coco, everyone for showing up. Uh, you guys are all really good growers. I have a great time with everybody and uh, I'll see you guys all next week. Awesome. Thank you, Noah. Um, Jack Greenstock, how's it going? Jack, thanks for being here as, as always. Happy to be here. I'm uh, actually excited about tomorrow. I'm getting married on 420 to at Lady Greenstock. So everybody go and give her a follow if you don't already. She's got a little bit smaller following than I do, but uh, don't be afraid to follow her. I won't be offended. I know some people were like, I don't want to rub you the wrong way by following her, but no, she's got an account. Feel free to follow it if you're interested. You can also find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram as well as Cannabuzz. I'm Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. But I want to remind everybody to uh, make sure you like this video like I just did. I watched Dr. MJ's video. It popped up in my subscription feed on my YouTube. So I watched this Grow Light calculator walkthrough, which was very helpful. So if you're planning on using that, I would watch the video first. And uh, it helps make it a lot more self-explanatory. And uh, or, well, it explains it in that video. So check it out. Leave a like. And make sure you leave a like on this video as well. And uh, support Shane of the Cheap Home Grow podcast, although he's not here. He's supporting us from behind the scenes. And he makes uh, a lot of this stuff happen for us. So we can keep providing this uh, content for you all. Awesome. Awesome, Jack. And thank you. Yeah, I'm glad that uh, you thought that video was helpful. Yeah, guys. So um, got the new Grow Light calculator, part of the whole new Grow Light guide. But I definitely think that the video will help answer a lot of questions people were having about sort of how to use it, what kind of information they needed to, to put in. And we got another number of other articles um, up 
related about that as well. So go check that out. And of course, our spring autoflower challenge at Cocoa for Cannabis starts tomorrow or actually like tonight. Um, for me, it starts in six hours. Um, it's a little bit late probably to get seeds if you don't already have them. But boy, if you got some seeds kicking around in your refrigerator and you're ready to start growing, um, join us in the Spring Autoflower Challenge. There is a photo period division of the Spring Autoflower Challenge. You can sign up for that at uh, Cocoa for Cannabis forward slash challenge. Um, thanks to all the rest of the panelists. Thanks to Shane from Growing With My Fellow or from Cheap Home Grow for setting up the Growing With My Fellow Home, um, Growers panel. Um, one of the highlights of all of our weeks and thanks to the chat for keeping it interesting and bringing all of your questions. Um, yeah, I'm Dr. MJ Coco for Cheap Home Grow signing off and uh, grower love everyone. Remember everybody try and grow your own if you can. <laughs>